Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist with the One-Armed Bandit. <laughs> it's, I'm Dr. Bob Weathers, and since the last time I saw you two weeks ago, I've had rotator cuff surgery, so that's what this is about. I'll be wearing this for the next uh, six weeks or so, and then I get some physical therapy. Uh, the good news is that it'll be fixed, and I'll be drumming again. And uh, I've mentioned it probably, at least in passing here, I've had a lifelong hobby of music, and specifically drumming, and... My rotator cuff, my wing needs a little bit of attention, and it just got it this last week. So I'm happy to be back, and I welcome you and appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Also want to invite you, if you find value in these podcasts, including in today's, feel free to send a link to a friend. Share, share this podcast with a friend today, even uh, in real time, so others can join in. The more people we have uh, come in, in, coming in to view this, the better it is for us in getting the word out there and promoting our program. So... Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, also, while I'm thinking of it, uh, Austin and Franz have been good enough to archive our prior podcasts. We now have 22 podcasts that we've created together, most every week. And you can access those, those through Facebook, YouTube, or through the Beginnings Treatment Center website. And I encourage you to check those, uh, those out. We're in the middle right now of a lengthy series looking at shame in its relationship to addiction and recovery. And in fact, in our last podcast, we focused on shame as it, as it manifests in our physical bodies and also as it manifests in our relationships. And we're going to take a little bit of a uh, further uh, step in that direction today. We're going to be looking at shame in the context of not just relationships, but also patterns that develop out of relationships, particularly specific relationships uh, that are significant in our uh, uh, psychological development. So we'll be looking at that today. If you've been with me before, you know that we I, I'll present some information. We'll have some exercises. We're going to do a meditation together today. We'll be covering lots of bases today. And uh, I appreciate you joining in. You might want to grab a piece of paper and, and a, a, a pen to write because we'll have some writing that you'll be doing, doing later. Or if you have a tablet that you can write as we go, that'd be good. Looks like that there may be a comment or question coming in. Right now it shows up as a dot. Okay. I'm waiting. We're still waiting. Okay. Okay. I'll keep going. And when it comes up, we'll, we'll attend to it. Okay. Um, uh, the next slide has to do with the fact that shame is an interpersonal emotion. And what do I mean by interpersonal emotion? It means that shame shows up in relationship. Uh, we've talked about shame so many different uh, ways in, uh, over, over time, but one of the ways of understanding shame is shame is the experience of a threat to my being accepted by others. If, if I'm, if I'm uh, threatened with the loss of social acceptance, that will manifest psychologically and physically as shame. In fact, shame is the, uh, uh, the one emotion that kicks up our stress hormones, specifically cortisol, at the very highest level. Threats to social acceptance, the threat of being kicked out of a group will kick up my cortisol the highest. Now, the flip side of that, and very much related to it, is that shame also represents a threat to my self-esteem, feeling okay about myself. And one of the ways that I can feel worst about myself is I can't, if I can't find a way to be accepted by, uh, by, by loved ones, by people that really matter to me. And so two sides of shame, threats to social acceptance, and if, I am at, if I'm at risk of being kicked out of my social group, including with loved ones, that's going to impact, uh, directly impact my self-esteem. So in that context, then you can understand how it is that shame is an interpersonal emotion. Let's talk about some examples of experiences that, that, uh, that uh, 
serve as the origins of shame and how those are rooted right in the midst of our interpersonal relationships. I feel very funny today using gestures because I tend to use gestures and I've got one hand. I've got one hand clapping, so bear with me. I'm just getting used to this. Two examples of, of uh, uh, that represent uh, origins of, self, uh, of, of uh, uh, loss of self-esteem and loss of social attachment, uh, or in other words, shame. One is uh, abuse from those that, that we count on. This would be uh, where we entrust others. For example, at birth on, we're, we're quite vulnerable as, as uh, human organisms, and we entrust others to care for us, even when it precedes our capacity to put that into words at a biological level, we have to entrust others with our care. And if we are invaded or abandoned, that is abused by those that are nearest to us and those uh, 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 with whom we have entrusted ourselves, uh, that, that will oftentimes manifest as shame. And how that goes is this way is that, that if, for example, I'm getting a double message, that is, this person is to be my caretaker, but they're not doing that. For example, somebody says they love me, but they do not act uh, uh, towards me in ways that are loving. That's a, that's, that's a, a catch-22 or a double message. But if that person has survival value to me, I don't dare question that or comment on that because they might put me out on the doorstep and I might perish. And so one of the, this is called the double bind. One of the, one of the difficulties around the origins of shame is that if there is uh, intimate abuse going on, that is uh, invasion of boundaries or abandonment of connection, especially with somebody for whom, uh, with whom we have survival, uh, a survival connection with them, then we don't, we really can't confront that. And instead what we do is that we internalize that, uh, that, abuse, that, that invasion, that abandonment. We internalize that as a, as a blueprint for future relationships. In a sense, that becomes normal. And so you, you get what I'm saying is that the world gets distorted this way, is that this that's supposed to be love is not coming across as love. And I have to internalize that as making sense. In fact, this becomes my template or, again, my blueprint for love. And so you begin to see the origins early on. We're going to go much more deeply into this and much more personally into it, but just kind of laying out, sketching out one possible origin of, of, self, uh, of uh, damages to self-esteem that lead to shame. Here's the question that was written out. Let me just ponder this for a second. Uh, the question is, how can you be supportive of someone else who is feeling shame-bound? It doesn't help to just tell them, quote, don't feel ashamed, unquote. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Let me hold this question as we move through the material. I'm going to find a way to weave it in. It's a great question. How do you support somebody who is bound by shame? And, and uh, common sense might suggest if I just tell them not to be bound by shame, that should be enough, right? but it typically isn't adequate. In fact, rarely is adequate. And so what's to be done then? Um, let me continue to talk a little bit about the origins of shame, and I promise to come back and weave in a response to this question, maybe with the several of the items that we unpack together. Thanks for the question. 
Another example uh, of the origins of self, uh, of, of, excuse me, of shame has to do, if it's not on a personal level, it can be on a cultural or societal level. And I want to give you uh, uh, some examples of that in a few minutes. It's enough just right now to say that, that, that uh, in our most intimate relationships, we can receive messages that end up negating us. Uh, in the previous example I gave, in an intimate relationship, let's say with a loved one like a parent, if that parent isn't capable of providing consistent care for us, rarely will the infant growing into childhood impute blame to the parent. Rather, they'll impute it to themselves, and that's a manifestation of shame. I'll feel like there's something wrong or broken about me because I must be worth no more than this that I'm getting, which is not really adequate or nourishing, sufficient love. And the child will internalize that and then repeat that experience, oftentimes in later relationships, well into adulthood. Another example of that then is that if, if culturally or societally, I'll give you a, a rough example now and we'll flesh this out more specifically later. If, for example, I'm born as a biological male or you as a biological <laughs> female, and I carry qualities please, uh, that some of those fit cultural stereotypes or mandates for what it is to be male, or what it is to be female, what happens if who I am in terms of my full potential isn't contained within the cultural stereotype or image of what it is to be whatever biological gender I am. Those areas that don't receive mirroring or support in the culture, very much like what happens in a family, but now we're talking about across an entire society, those parts that aren't supported or, or nourished or mirrored, as in a mirror reflecting our, our best selves, those parts will tend to go into hiding and they themselves will become sources of shame. So you can begin to get a feel for how it is that shame can originate personally in the context, particularly of our families of origin, and also within the cultural embeddedness in which we, uh, in, in which we develop. Uh, I, the next slide discusses how it is that shame lodges in the physical body. Now, we spent an entire session two weeks ago looking at how this is the case. Um, and uh, I think that this begins to get at this question that we just asked a moment ago. What happens if you, if you try to tell somebody who's bound by shame to stop feeling ashamed? The problem is, one of the problems is, is that shame is subcortical. By what I mean by that is that if shame was just a common sense thing, you could tell me to stop being ashamed, and I go, oh, I never thought of that. Let me stop being ashamed. The fact is, is that shame doesn't make it up to the cortex, to the frontal cortex, which is able to make decisions and execute changes in our life. It's the navigator. In fact, it's rooted in the emotional center of the brain that is subcortical, that is much more linked to our instincts and our body reactions, like, for example, a stress response. And so you can talk to me till I'm blue in the face about not being ashamed, and it won't even touch the part of me that is pre-verbal. And shame has its origins in the earliest uh, parts of our brain and the earliest parts of our human development. And so it's one of the ways of understanding why common sense approaches to shame typically aren't effective. I don't want to throw out hope here. In fact, we'll be addressing hope today as well as our next podcast. It's just that a, there, there isn't a direct line from what I say to you if you're ashamed, and I tell you not to be ashamed, there's not a direct line to that, to your transformation. And that's one of the ways that we understand that, is that shame lodges in the body, it lodges in the pre-verbal part of the body, specifically the emotional center of the brain, what's referred to as the limbic system. It also lodges in what I call in this slide the human spirit. And what I mean by that is that shame, what shame what shame traumatizes is our potentials to be all of who we can be. Shame clips our wings and then clips the clippings. 
Shame pulls the rug out under, underneath our feet, and so whenever we're moving towards being more of who we are, shame comes in and silences that and basically throws a bushel basket over us and, uh, and minimizes us. It erases us. It reduces us. Shame negates our potential. And so in that sense, shame, uh, shame is, uh, uh, is, in a sense, an, an antidote to the human spirit's strivings. The next slide is an image that I found online, and I wanted just to look at this together for a moment because I think what it does is it, it, it's, a, it's an image of a, a statue uh, holding itself in a position of shame, and I think you can relate to this image. Uh, and what we're talking about here is how it is that shame affects the body. You can see that in this image, how the body tends to... In fact, I just asked today in the group that I led before I came, how does shame locate itself in your body? This is to a group of men. And the responses were varied, but they went like this. I feel it in my gut. And you can see it in this image here of this statue. There's a feeling of, of, of reaching around your body and protecting yourself. Another person said, I feel it in my chest. Another person said, I feel it in my face. I get hot. I get uh, embarrassed. I, my face flushes. I sweat. Another person talked about it in terms of their shoulders. They get tense and tight. Another person said, shame makes me want to crawl into a hole. So shame is a, is a paralyzing emotion that makes us want to flee. It freezes us up. It freezes us up. And this is an image of what shame does to our bodies. It's also an image of what shame does to our spirits because there's no way that you can flourish in the context of this kind of emotion. Now, I've already stated that shame is a relational emotion. And I want to get more specific about that now. Shame tends to show up in our most significant relationships. Over the years of doing counseling, for example, with couples, I've had couples come in and say, you know, I, no one makes me feel like my husband does. He gives me that withering gaze, or he has that tone in his voice. Or my wife, if she just didn't talk to me that way, no one else talks to me the way that she does. And the fact is, is that no one affects us, especially if we have vulnerabilities to shame, and we all do to one degree or another, particularly for those who are in the population of those that have been addicted. There's a high correlation between shame and addictive behaviors. And it turns out that those, that those uh, triggers for shame tend to manifest mostly or most powerfully in our most significant relationships. So when somebody says to me, I don't, no one makes me feel as bad as my partner or my son or my daughter, or my mother or my father, you might as well acknowledge that that's, it's always going to be that way. And why would that be the case? If you think about it, is that negating messages or mixed messages like I talked about earlier, I say that I love you as I scream at you, or I say that I love you as I turn my back on you and walk away from you, the most wounding of those messages are laid down in our most significant early relationships and across our life. And so there's no place that they'll be more activated than in the relationships about which we care the most. I'm pausing for just a second to think about this because this, this will lead some people to make a lifelong decision that I'm not going to make myself vulnerable to caring for anybody because it hurts so damn bad. And why does it hurt so damn bad? Is that it goes all the way back to the most primitive kind of foundations of my emotional life. And so why would I risk being hurt again? You can understand why people don't want to go there. You can also understand why it is that people will be fine, uh, for example, in a work context or in a less, uh, a, less, uh, a less emotionally intimate context. And I'm going to give the example of coming home to their marriage or coming home to their family. 
and then being triggered all over the place in terms of painful emotions that lead to shame and then acting those out, whether it's an aggressive behavior or an addictive behavior as two examples. And it happens uh, primarily in the relationships that matter the most to us. Now, how does this unfold uh, developmentally? I mentioned earlier that if I entrust myself to those that, that are there to care for me, my caregivers, I'll call them for right now my parents, and that trust is broken, any family member, anybody that's close to us, if we entrust them with our care and that trust is broken, there's a scar laid down, and that scar represents a, a, a memory that doesn't easily get forgotten. It actually gets laid down in the psyche, where a scarred memory is, is laid down. It's actually referred to as the hippocampus in our brain. It registers these, and it's connected up to another organ called the amygdala that is fear central. Fear central protects us from repeating that experience. And so if it were just a single instance of a disappointing interaction, or even a, trauma, a traumatic interaction, oftentimes a, one significant event isn't sufficient unless it's hugely, hugely traumatic. But as we talked about in today's group, with trauma and with shame, it's more often death by a thousand paper cuts than by a single knife stab, by a single knife wound. It's the multiplicity of wounds. It's the day after day being chopped away at, being undercut, being subtly abandoned or subtly invaded that leads to not just a single scarred memory, but a whole network of scarred memories. And, and so it is that traumas are typically not isolated. They oftentimes represent long-term patterns, including in our relationships, in our, in our, in our primary relationships, and, uh, and they end up leading to a whole network of scars. Let's talk about a couple of examples of how this can go in relationship. One example is the invasion of boundaries. If you have experienced, uh, we, we talked about this in today's group with the men, if you have experienced, uh, one individual said, I had a mother who was consistently overwhelming, who just always in my stuff. If you haven't been able to protect your integrity from the invasion of a caregiver, uh, uh, you'll, know, you'll, you'll know how that feels long-term. And uh, uh, when it's completely misattuned repeatedly like that, it represents its own form of emotional abuse. That abuse can also move into physical abuse or even sexual abuse, but it's an invasion of boundaries. And the flip side of that is uh, an abandonment of connection. And so rather than invading your boundaries, there's no connection. I actually turn the other way and walk away from you. So we talked about that as well. Now, both of these, if they represent patterns, will lay down predictable networks of scars. In fact, you can imagine for just a second, I don't want to be simplistic about this, but I at least want to provide some common sense direction through this, is that if you've repeatedly experienced the invasion of your personal boundaries, how do you imagine that that manifests then across your life when it comes to intimate relationships? Think about that for just a second. You've experienced the repeated invasion of boundaries. I asked that very same question today to our, our group of men, and, and they said, what happens is that you end up either aggressing. One, one man said, I've ended up rebelling against anybody getting close to me in my entire life. You end up aggressing or pushing away because any movement towards you represents the potential for an invasion. And so why, would, why wouldn't you protect yourself by whatever means necessary? 
Another person said, that's not what I did. What I did is that I backed away or moved away. I withdrew from relationship because there was always the prospect that I wasn't going to be able to have my boundaries respected. So I don't want closeness. I want distance. And so this person used distance or withdrawal as a coping strategy. So those are two coping strategies in regards to the invasion of boundaries. What's the flip side look like in terms of if there's an abandonment or a desertion of connection? What is, how does that manifest? Think about that for a moment. I asked that question today and somebody to the left said, it manifests as clinginess. And so I actually had somebody stand up in the group and I said, I want you to come towards me and then walk away from me. And he, as he began walking away from me, I began to chase him down with my one good arm and I grabbed a hold of his shoulder. And I said, one of the manifestations of being abandoned is that it manifests as clinginess. I said, another way that can manifest, especially for us men, it was a group of men, is that if there's what we experience as a micro rejection, and even just the, 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 the hint of a rejection, it can manifest, particularly for men who've been socialized, to lead with aggression as opposed to a more vulnerable emotion. I won't be clingy, I'll just be angry. And so one of the manifestations of a history of abandonment is anger at the slightest hint that I'm not worthy of your love. Both of these hover around the topic of shame because in either case, I'm either not worth your respecting my boundaries, which is a blow to my self-esteem slash shame, or I'm not worthy of being connected with to begin with. And so I'm, uh, uh, that would be another way that shame manifests is that I'm, I'm not worthy of love or of care. And so when, it, when trust is broken, there's a scar laid down, not only just a scar, but most often a whole network of scars. Now, why is this significant in the context of our adult relationships? In fact, one individual asked today, he said, he said, he says, why does everybody here, we're talking in a treatment center setting, why is everybody here talking about what they grew up with and what happened with their parents and their brothers and so on? He says, what's the big deal? And I said, well, it may not be a big deal for you because not everybody grows up in an environment in which they experienced abuse, violation of boundaries or abandonment of connection. Not everybody did. I, I did say, I did cite the studies that had been done. They're called the ACE studies. Adverse Childhood Experiences, and those studies have been done nationally, and when you look at the population of those that have become addicted uh, to substance, when you look at the population of those that have become addicted, and look at their scores in terms of how, how many of those uh, individuals score high in terms of the number and the severity of adverse childhood experiences, there's nearly a one-to-one -one correlation between those that have experienced a statistically elevated number of adverse childhood experiences and addiction. You might ask, why would that be the case? Ask yourself, why would that be the case? How would I tell my groups? As I said, you get to be the psychologist today. You guys tell me. And it ties into what we were saying earlier and somebody in the group mentioned today. He says, he says it stands to reason that if I have a history of being abused emotionally, physically or sexually, that my baseline of stress, uh, put it another way, my baseline of shame is higher than the norm. And there's none of us that can sustain that elevated cortisol, that elevated stress hormone response um, uh, over, over a long time with any duration without needing to find some way to cope with that. And in the room of those that are all uh, in recovery from addiction, it's universal, and I include myself in this group, it's universal that we have all found one way 
to numb out or anesthetize from the pain of an elevated stress response owing to a history of abuse is to use drugs and, and, and uh, to self-medicate. There's another question that's come in. Let me take a look at this question. How do you extend the healing of shame into regular life with friends and family? Do you have any exercises for unshaming that we can do with a friend or partner? God, these questions are great, both of these. I haven't forgotten the first question either. You know, they're related. The first question was, how can you be supportive of somebody else who's feeling shame-bound? And the second question is, how do you extend this uh, into relationships with friends and family? Are there exercises for unshaming? We're going to do one today, so let's, let's, let's uh, come back to these questions at the very tail end. I have an exercise, and I have an experiment today. I've, I, I have an experiment. It's a meditation. It'll be the first time that I've utilized it in this kind of context. I want to try this today as a suggestion. It's not meant to be a prescription, but it's meant to be suggestive of something you might do yourself in terms of being creative, starting with yourself and then finding a way to bring this to a friend or a loved one. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for anything we can do practical that help, will help uh, with, with uh, the healing of our shame, for sure. So uh, hang with me. We're going to be coming to exercise in just a few minutes. We're coming around the corner here. Let me ask a couple more questions to get us more into the field of this network of scarred memories that we're talking about that serves as the root of shame in the body and how it limits our human spirits. The example is this. Let me ask you this. When a care, there's a slide coming up for this one. When there's a caregiver that moves away from you, whenever you become assertive or creative, imagine that, that it's a parent, a teacher, a friend, and that whenever you assert yourself, whenever you take a stand, or maybe it's whenever you do something original, whenever you create, they move away from you. They abandon you. They ignore you. Can you imagine what the long-term result of that might be? Let me ask a different question. What would be the short-term feeling? What would be the immediate feeling from that? You bring home, you're a child, and you bring home some, something that you've created that you're proud about, and the parent uh, not only uh, doesn't celebrate, they actually do the opposite. They move away from you. How would that feel to you as a child? I think every one of us can imagine that that would feel awful. It would, it would manifest as a pained experience. In fact, the feeling that goes with that would be a feeling in your own self, within your own body and mind, would be a feeling of shame. And what happens if that's habitual? And for some of us, we grew up with this, where whenever you stood up for yourself or whenever you... Whenever you shone, that is, whenever you were able to do something that represented your own voice, your own contribution, that was ignored. Maybe sometimes it was even worse, it was ridiculed. How does that manifest when that's a long-term pattern as you move into adulthood? Well, the next slide suggests that one possibility, one possible scenario here, is that you learn to avert abandonment by just never risking being assertive, by never creating. And so you put your light under a bushel. And for some of us, that's been our experience. There's some thought in psychology all the way back to early development that insofar as a child experiences the mirroring of their creativity, the mirroring of their individuality, the mirroring of their assertiveness, that's the extent to which that uh, that uh, those strengths manifest as ambitions across a lifetime. 
And if those are rained upon, in other words, if there's not support for that, if there's a, a, a wet blanket thrown over ambition, that shuts down this normal striving to better ourselves and to be all that we can be, and that that will manifest as a lifelong vulnerability to this shame that would keep us limited, would keep us in a box. Let me use another example here. The next example has to do with society. Maybe it's not your family or other loved ones. Maybe it's society that rejects some part of you being who you are in your own individual way. The example I've given here today is ties back to what we were talking about earlier. I'm going to talk about psychological gender here. If, if you are a male who does not exhibit only stereotypically male behaviors, uh, for example, if you have artistic creativity and you're raised in a society that does not value that for males, values instead athletic uh, abilities for a male. I'm just going to give an example of that. You can think of other examples. Or if you're a female and there's certain socialization in terms of what, what girls do, quote unquote, and what girls don't do, and your strengths lie in the area of what girls don't do, how might that manifest in terms of identity? How might that manifest in terms of shame? How might that manifest in terms of self-actualization, becoming all of who you can be? Think about that for a moment. Well, I think the next slide suggests what, how that will manifest is that the result would be very similar to the previous example, except this is now a response to uh, a, being, being, being a poor fit with society or with your culture, is that you would avoid or avert abandonment by never fully being who you are. You can be the parts of yourself that are, that are mirrored and, and fed and rewarded by your surrounding culture, but those that aren't would, would lie in quiescence. They would be dormant. They would never, they would never really rise up and be uh, activated. The next exercise, we're going to move into a two-part exercise now. It's meant to um, address the questions that have been asked about, what do you do? What do I do about for myself? What do I do for somebody else? This is experiencing being shame-bound. I want you to participate with me for your own self. And then you'll, as, as we do this together, you'll find possible toeholds in terms of how you might apply this to uh, uh, those that matter most in your life who may be experiencing uh, shame themselves. So what we're going to do is just a brief, uh, uh, brief meditation here. It's just going to be a mindfulness of the breath. It's just basically to relax ourselves. And then I'm going to uh, uh, call on a couple of examples to draw in experiences from our lives where we've been ashamed. I'm going to ask for us to locate in our body where we feel that in a more relaxed state. So what we're trying to do is kind of settle the baseline uh, of your, of your act activity right now so that you can focus in on how you feel. And then I'm going to ask you just to write a few notes to yourself. So if you have a piece of paper handy, like I said earlier, or a tablet, to write down some notes. And then we're going to follow that with an, uh, a, another two-part meditation very quickly that will be an attempt to address really what we've talked about in the questions that are coming in, really address the uh, a helpful or a compassionate or a healing response to shame. So will you join me uh, in this exercise? To start with, we're just going to do a breathing exercise. This is what we've done in previous episodes. It'll be just a couple, three minutes, and then I'll, and then I'll uh, provide some direction. Okay, so if you'll just join me, if you're comfortable closing your eyes, I do this in order to reduce distraction.
taking a deep breath. Take it all the way in to your all the way your chest and your belly, and then release that breath. Another deep breath in. Inhale, rising, exhale, falling. On the next in-breath, follow your breath all the way down into your belly. Feel your stomach or your belly rise, and as you breathe out, feel it settle back down. Focus your attention on the next couple of breath cycles, if you can, just on that breathing all the way down inside your body, in your abdomen. Rising and falling. One more deep in-breath, and the out-breath. And in this place, if you're comfortable still with your eyes closed, I want you to remember to recall, you may have already done this as we've been speaking, but I'd like you to recall a, a repeated experience that you had in your childhood a repeated experience of either having your boundaries invaded or connection abandoned. I want you to think of a specific relationship in which this occurred more than once. Ideally, it happened repeatedly for the sake of our exercise. There's nothing ideal about the experience. I want you to remember that as you're breathing in quietly right now. Remember that experience. And I want you to do the best you can to locate where you feel right now, what that might have felt like even then in your body. To experience your boundaries being crossed or invaded, or for the sense of interpersonal connection to have been voided or uh, abandoned. Just, just a moment, just focusing in on that. Pick something that you feel like is manageable. Please do not pick something that you're going to be overwhelmed by. Pick something that you feel like you can manage for right now in this meditation. Take a minute just to focus on that. I want you next to pick an example from some way you've grown up within whatever society or culture you've grown up. Some of you have grown up here in the United States, grown up in a sub certain subculture or another. Think of your group, think of your people, but more societally right now. And think of something about you, some, some part of who you are that wasn't valued, that was pushed to the margins in this society in which you grew up. See if you can focus on that for a moment, that quality, that, that potential strength of yours that's been relegated to the slag heap, that's been pushed to the side, and see if you can locate in your body how that feels right now and how that may have felt across your lifetime, having that be uh, unsupported or invalidated again and again and again. So again, just focusing on the breath, focusing on a memory of some part of you 
that society abandoned. What I want you to do right now, you can open your eyes right now, I want you to take a moment, if you will, and just write down a couple of quick notes to yourself. If you have a pad of paper there, uh, if you're writing at a computer, just write down a couple of notes to yourself um, for your own journaling sake. I really want you to be able to have this written down, especially in this state of mind. I'm going to do the same thing. And uh, I want you to record this, and then we're going to come back and we're going to complete the meditation, okay? Thank you uh, for participating in the exercise. <clears throat> uh, in response to the, or two earlier questions then that were asked about what to do about this, what do we do to support somebody who's shame-bound? We're going to pick ourselves right now. What do we do about ourselves when we feel shame-bound? And I'd ask you to meditate into a place uh, where you've experienced, uh, by those closest to you that were entrusted with your care, where you've experienced violation of boundaries, or abandonment of, of connection. I've asked you to locate that in terms of how that, how that feels to you even now. And I've asked you also to reflect on how, how this may have happened at a culture or social level when some part of you might have been ignored or invaded or abandoned. And I've asked for you to reflect on that as well. And, and so what I want to follow with is, a, is an exercise. It's adapted from a loving-kindness meditation uh, that's drawn out of my work in refuge recovery, but I'm adapting it in a way that I've never done before. And I want you to try this and see if this, if you find this useful. I want you to feel free that you can write me as we're continuing here today with today's podcast. It'll just be a brief exercise. You can write me with how it goes for you. And what I'm going to do once we complete the exercise is do my best to uh, uh, weave it into the questions that were asked earlier in terms of how this might be applied to, applied to relationships. But let's try the exercise for ourselves. So I'm going to ask you to go back into the breathing. Let's just do a couple of deep breaths right now. If you close your eyes again, breathing in, breathing out. We're just trying to relax the body and mind even just a little bit to be able to focus down into the more vulnerable places. Breathing in, breathing out.
I want you to imagine, <clears throat> I want you to pick, why don't we do this? Let's pick both of these, but let's pick them in sequence. So I want to start by, pick the first example where you focused on some part of you early in your experience which experienced a violation, trauma, shame, and it had to do with relationships that mattered a lot to you. Don't you imagine an age in which you remember that happening? Could have happened across your childhood, could be continuing right now. But pick an age, and I want you to imagine you as you are right now in this meditation, extending the following three gifts to that self that was abandoned or invaded, abused. So I want, to, I want you to imagine saying this, in your adult self to this, this other hurt or damaged self, would you imagine saying, first of all, may you feel my love. See if you can imagine saying that and what that might feel like to that self that was injured to receive love from you right now. May you feel this love inside me. May you feel this right now. Second, it's another uh, thread through all of this. May you feel peace. May you feel my peace. Imagine extending peace in a deep way to this injured self from earlier on. And then, may you feel joy. May you feel my joy. Imagine how you might extend joy to this younger injured self. This shamed self is now being invited to experience this gift you're giving it, the gift of joy. Now this is the experiment. I want you to try this with me. Can we turn this around and can you ask of the younger injured self this, may I feel your love can you imagine in your mind's eye or your heart's, in your heart, receiving love from this younger injured self that wants your safety and protection? And now it's saying, now you're saying, may I feel your love. May I feel your love. Can you imagine feeling love from this younger self? May I feel your peace. Again, peace coming from this vulnerable self that's been injured, that's been shamed. And now it's extending peace in relationship to you right now. Can you imagine that younger self wanting to offer you peace? May, may I experience joy. May I experience joy coming from this younger self. 
May I experience its joy, his joy, her joy. I want to stay with this for just a more, uh, one more minute, you guys. I want to do the same thing with the second example, so stick with me. If it worked for you at least a little bit, that's good. If it didn't, hang with me. Let's try it with the second example. This time, some part of you that's been socially ostracized, abandoned, limited, judged, rejected, that second exercise, I want us to do the same thing. Imagine that self that's been rejected marginalized, and imagine extending it to it, your love, and saying to it, may you feel my love. Give that injured self all the love that you can. Can you imagine him or her receiving your love? May you feel my peace. Offering peace to this younger self. May you feel my joy. Imagine offering joy to this self that, that would like to experience joy. And now to flip it around and we're almost wrapped up. Can you imagine receiving love back from this younger self that you've just loved? May I receive, may I feel your love you're saying now to this younger self, this injured self, Maya, may I feel your love. May I feel your peace. May I feel your joy. My worry is that this is going to sound like a whole bunch of hocus-pocus, what we've just done. And it may not have touched you, and, and that's fine. It was an experiment. What I'm struck by in doing it here with you, it's a derivation of something I do every day in terms of my own meditation, in terms of including a loving-kindness that I extend towards myself and towards others. But it's the first time that I've applied it quite in this context. And as we've talked about before in terms of other meditations, I'm not sure that one is nearly sufficient. If you experienced any kind of tick in the positive direction, I definitely did. I'd recommend practicing with it and improvising on it to find where it works for you. It's not the single pass through this, though. It's the repetition of this. Um, what we're talking about, we talked about earlier about a network of scars. What we're trying to do is to develop a new neuronal network in the brain that serves as an antidote to the old uh, part of us that would contract us down into a shamed, self-negating stance. So what we're trying to do is to build compassion, love, build protection, peace, build potential, joy. What we're trying to do is build that where it's been evacuated owing to shame and to uh, injury from the past. So as we wrap up, what I want to do is I want to apply uh, creatively, if possible, to the questions that were asked earlier about how do you extend this to another? What would it be like to, to improvise again? What would it be like to improvise this with this with somebody that you love? What would it be like to sit with them and have them drop into a place of feeling vulnerable around personal shame 
And uh, shame as a function of maybe lifelong patterns. That's really our topic today, is looking at how these relationship uh, wounds typically represent thousands, perhaps even millions of interactions in which certain blueprints or templates are laid down and they lead to what we expect in a relationship. We expect so little for ourselves. And what would it be like to move into that kind of vulnerability in the presence of a loved one, a father or a mother, a brother or a sister, a husband or a wife, our beloved? What would it be like to move into that and to be the one who's, who's offering what we finished with, we were doing this ourselves, what would it be like to offer that love to another in real time? May you feel this love that I have for you. May you feel this love for the abandoned or invaded part of you that you've shared with me. May you feel my love. May you feel my protection. May you feel my peace. May you feel joy in the presence of safety to be able to trust letting go into into joy and happiness. I think it also addresses the earliest question that asked about what happens if you tell somebody to stop being shamed. We've got to find skillful means to get down to this pre-verbal part that's buried in the brain. It's in the, it's in the subcortex. If this is the cortex, underneath that is the subcortex. And it's at least partially available to soothing words. It's probably more interested in the tone of my voice than it is the content of my words. And that's why we've picked a meditation today that's primarily nonverbal. It's asking you to remember into a place and feel that place in your body and then to administer compassion or loving kindness to that place. We've got, we've got to find skillful means that will get down to that. And certainly directing somebody to stop feeling ashamed probably is going to have negligible impact. Whereas a sincerely felt exchange between two people, or even today as we're doing this ourselves, within ourselves, if we have a part of us that can offer compassion and loving kindness to the other parts of us that don't feel like we're worth that compassion or loving kindness, uh, and if we can practice that, we can actually begin to build muscles of self-forgiveness. I do want to mention, it's a resource that we've talked about before. We've done actually entire meditations here on self-forgiveness, is that in a moment I'm going to have Franz bring up my website where you can go there and you can see all kinds of resources, including exercises for managing self-compassion, self-forgiveness. There is a, there's a recording that I did in a, completed just in December that the whole recording is, is a meditation on being able to forgive ourselves. And the questions today are, how do we do this in relationship? And I think it's built right into that meditation. If I can learn to do this for myself, maybe as a beginning, maybe I can offer this to you as my loved one. And I want to recommend that you seek out resources on the website. Most of them are free. The, the, the CD costs some money, but most of, that, most of the resources there are for you to, to read and to apply. And there's tons of exercises. So I want to recommend that to you. Are there any final questions as we finish up today? Any final comments or questions? Appreciate very much the thoughtfulness that went into the earlier questions. And they locate, you know, if you stop and think about this, shame is, uh, is and we talked about this from the very beginning today, its origins are interpersonal. And so doesn't it stand to reason that the healing of shame would also require an interpersonal response? This is the value, in my mind, of a good therapist, a good coach, a good sponsor, a good mentor, a good friend, is that 
Uh, it's in the context of relationship where these strands are laid down, what I called earlier scars. It's also in the context of, of healing relationship that these scars are, are, are healed over and that there are new, uh, new ways of, of, uh, of operating the world, new, new templates, new, are, uh, new blueprints are created. And so it stands to reason that it will happen in relationship. Someone wrote, thank you. And uh, thank you for attending. I appreciate your presence. I hope this is helpful. I want to invite you a couple of things as we're finishing up. Next week, we're going to be looking further into healing. I call it the healing, the, uh, healing of the black hole of shame. We're going to be talking about the black hole of shame. And I want to say this today in honor of Stephen Hawking, who just, uh, Hawking's, who just passed away yesterday. Uh, he has done so much research across his life. He was the leading theoretical physicist on the planet for the last 50 years at Cambridge University. He's probably written more about black holes than anybody. And out of honoring Stephen Hawking's and, and his research, we're going to be talking about shame as a black hole and the strange attractor phenomenon in shame. And I want to give due honor to the, 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 the great physicist who's just passed away. We'll be talking about that black hole next week, and we'll be talking further and doing exercises that are really geared towards healing. That's really, that's really the wish here. I also want to recommend that you go to my website again, and, and Franz is going to bring up my website here. You're welcome to go there, drbobweathers.com. You can write me from my website. You can also write me through our, our uh, Facebook group here, Ask an Addiction Specialist. You can also contact me through Beginnings Treatment Center, the website at Beginnings Treatment Center. You can also contact me through the YouTube. There's various ways of contacting me, and Austin Armstrong is really good about uh, forwarding to me uh, uh, further comments or questions. I really invite you sharing with me what worked for you today, what maybe what didn't work, questions that you have along the lines of what we talked about. We're going to continue to unpack this, and I'll tell you why we're focusing on shame. I see shame is right at the center of uh, relapse prevention. If we don't address shame, if the number one trigger for relapse is stress, and the number one stressor for most of us is shame, it's the elephant in the room that if we don't address that, then we're really not going to be able to protect our sobriety long term. So I feel like it's worth our giving lots and lots of attention to finding ways of getting under, down into, doing whatever's necessary to heal this dadgum phenomenon of shame in order to uh, promote our best selves. I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to thank Odie, Austin, and Franz for producing uh, our presentation today. I want to invite you to come back next week for our next installment on the black hole of shame and how we heal it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Blessings to you. Hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you.